When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. I'm very happy to be joined this week by activist, educator, and Tupac Shakur's first manager, Leila Steinberg. Ms. Steinberg is featured and interviewed in Alan Hughes' really incredible documentary series on FX called Dear Mama. The five-part series tells the story of the influential rapper and poet Tupac Shakur and his mama, Afeni. Afeni was a Black Panther, activist, and orator. She also suffered greatly in periods, and she influenced Tupac immensely. The series features unique archival material, extensive interviews with friends and family, artists like Eminem, Snoop, and people who influenced Tupac along the way. Among others, Lila Steinberg. Steinberg and Shakur met in the 1980s in the Bay Area in California, when Tupac was 17 years old and Layla only six years older. Steinberg was a concert promoter and arts educator who hosted writing circles for young poets, rappers, and actors out of her living room. In the first episode of Dear Mama, there's a clip where Tupac talks about Steinberg and her influence on him. Here's what he says, quote, She was older, she was white, and she's the one that I used to let look at my poetry. She understood a lot of things that I was doing that other people couldn't understand. And she's the one that stayed on me about working hard to do my music. End quote. Before we meet Lila Steinberg, here is a short clip from Alan Hughes' documentary series, Dear Mama. Okay, my name is Tupac Shakur, and I attend Tamapai High School, and I'm 17 years old. It was my responsibility to teach Tupac how to survive his reality. My mother taught me to analyze society and not be quiet. If there's something in my mind, speak it. Because, okay, I gotta go to the beginning. My mother was a Black Panther, and she was really involved in the movement. My mother never let me forget my history, hoping I was set free, chains that were put on me. It was very difficult for me to be a mom, but I knew very well how to protect my children. And who thinking elementary? Hey, I see the penitentiary one day. I've spent a great deal of my own life in prison. I never wanted it to happen to my son. I have a revolutionary story that I must tell. My hands refuse to be beaten by this tormented cell. I think my mother knew that freedom wouldn't come in her lifetime, just like I know that it won't come in mine. My mama was a crack addict. I ended up in Baltimore on welfare with no lights on in high school. He was pissed off that he was often left to fend for himself. He was suffering. When I was young, me and my mama had beef 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. We never spent time together because she was always speaking and going to colleges and everything. And then after that was over, it was more time spent with me. And we were both just like, 
you're my mother and she was like you're my son and what do we do i finally understand for a woman it ain't easy trying to raise a man i wanted him to have a place where he found beauty integrity and strength within himself and there's no way i could pay you back but my plan is to show you that i understand you all appreciate Ms. Steinberg, thank you so much for joining. Well, thank you. It's such a fantastic documentary that you're featured in about Tupac and his mom. But I want to start with you um, and go back a bit. Do you remember the first time that you realized the power of art on kids? It's the answer to change, you say. I I definitely realize the the role art had for me from, you know, elementary school, from kindergarten. I always gravitated towards any activity that we could celebrate music, sound, dance. I went to school in Los Angeles. I went to a predominantly black and brown elementary school. And then by middle school, I was Northside Santa Monica. And in music, it didn't matter where we were or where we came from. Soul Train and some of the dance shows were just coming on television. So I remember being in elementary school and on Saturdays we waited for um, Soul Train and Big Band, whatever the show was, I can't remember, but we would learn the dances and all the kids in the neighborhood, we would dance together. And so I remember in second grade, acting out songs. And I think that I have such a vivid memory in elementary school laying on this horrible carpet we had in our house and hearing Marvin Gaye's What's Going On had just come out. And I was pretty young to to analyze what's going on and the backdrop of Vietnam War and my mom being pretty active. And so I think Just in terms of the dynamic of music speaking to me, Marvin Gaye spoke to me. Um, He was one of the first artists in my childhood that had me asking questions with him. And I loved that he talked to us through his song. And I, I think that those were my beginnings of understanding that um, music transforms us. It speaks to us. It asks us questions and it builds community that supersedes our separations. Of course, and you were mentioning activism. You come from, actually your mother was was very active. Talk about that. I think both of my parents were active in different ways and the convergence of their different activism and, and who they were had a profound effect on me. My father um, was a public defender in LA's juvenile courts. There is nowhere that you see the dynamics of race like the courtroom and the jails. So my dad's commitment and activism had a lot to do with justice and um, the injustice of our court system um, with black and brown people. And so I spent a lot of my childhood in the back of courtrooms with my dad. I never saw white kids in the juvenile courts. And my father would say, well, most 
of the time white kids get private attorneys. And my dad got in trouble as a kid and like the other white kids had private attorneys. So his outcome was very different than the kids in the neighborhood who got in trouble. And it wasn't serious, but the outcomes were so vastly different that I think that my dad began to pay attention at a young age to the things that I took up later. And so my dad wanted to defend the young kids that um, they couldn't access private attorneys, but really fight for kids. And so I, I witnessed that. And then I'm you know born in 61. So I was born into a generation that that was transforming, that was looking at justice, that was looking at race, that was looking at rights, looking at women's movements, the Black Panthers. And so the Bay Area and LA were hubs for activists and, and music drove the movements. And I saw that, whether it was Cesar Chavez and the farm workers and having a lot of artists rally around what Cesar Chavez was doing, whether it was Jack Healy, who started Amnesty International and helped build artist careers, who helped build his movement. I, I think I saw it over and over again. And years later, I would end up in a mostly Nigerian and South African band. And the entire movement to end apartheid was fueled by artists. And, and so there's just so many stories that I latched onto throughout the years that, that gave me evidence and hope that we could utilize our art and our, our creativity to transform lives, to drive movement, to have conversations that were uncomfortable. And so I think that was my first love was, um, was the possibility of art and music and what it does for all of us. Tell me about the writing circles that you were hosting for young poets and rappers already. You were not even 20, I understand, when you were doing these. I guess I should give, you know, I haven't had enough conversations that give context and backstory. So I'm always awkward and I hate interviews. And then I afterwards realize, oh my gosh, I never gave this person credit or I never gave the whole story. But well, what, please do. <laughs> um, I, I'm about to, to share with you because I think it's important. And I've mentioned Peggy Shackleton a few times, but um, art and education are, are my loves. I love music and art and I love the possibility that we can read and now we have access and we can educate ourselves like never before. But I used to escape in books when I was a kid. Books could take me anywhere that I couldn't go. And so I really had a love for language and books. And when I was in middle school, there was a woman named Peggy Shackleton. I moved to Santa Monica from LA. I was kind of a fish out of water. People looked more like me but their life experience was very different. I didn't grow up in a privileged household in North Santa Monica and I suddenly lived there. And so I, I felt awkward. And one day after school, there was this, oh, actually, no, it was an assembly during school. And this woman from the Board of Education came and announced to a whole group at the assembly that she wanted to do 
a circle twice a week. We could either do it before school or after school. And she didn't really tell us that much about what we'd be doing, but she said she was gonna give us books and it was strictly volunteer. We weren't even gonna get credit. And it piqued my interest. And I ended up in this first circle that I had been in. And so Peggy gave us all the books. Siddhartha was the first book she gave us. And she told us to go read it. And we were gonna talk about the symbolism and the story of Siddhartha. And I had no idea what I was gonna go read. And that was the beginning of four years, twice a week, and a circle of people that I'm still friends with today. So this was um, 45, 46 years ago. And we began with books and then we went on to songs and it was a circle where she helped us think critically and analyze what we heard. We never knew what her thoughts or opinions were. She wouldn't share um, what she thought. She would drive us to think deeply and to analyze society. And I never had a clue how that would affect me or where I would take that. But she was an incredible woman who donated a lot of time and always um, told us that we're, our destiny was in our hands with books and education. And back then I had to walk a long way to go to a library. So it was just so beautiful that she gave us this collection of books that I still have. I got so many books from her. And even years later, I moved to Central America and then I moved to Northern California and randomly multiple times a year, a book would arrive. So this is what you did, carried on. Exactly. And so I wanted to inspire creativity from dialogue. So I began to think about how I could take what I learned from Peggy um, and do something similar with artists, but then assign topics and turn that process into assemblies and programs in the schools. And one of the things that I got from Peggy that didn't have a word for me back then was an exploration of the heart and, and that the mind follows the heart. And if you can get the heart of a community, the heart of a people, you can take them anywhere. And she got my heart. She just snatched my heart up and I love this woman like family. She was so incredible. And I wanted to do what she did for me, to everyone that I, I wanted us to understand the power of our heart. And what I also understood is that I was a thinker. I had parents that had me thinking. And so I didn't bury my ability to think critically or to, um, to not fear analysis or being wrong or um, making choices. But I felt like a lot of my friends and people I grew up with were not encouraged to think freely. Um, and then on top of that, we have all the systemic issues that, that cloud us and put us in boxes. And so I wanted to take that and turn it into a process that could hit so many more people. I took the tools that I got from Peggy 
and then I added a new layer. So in my, um, my early years as a parent, in my early 20s, I wanted to do this thing <laughs> that, <laughs> that I shared in. And, and ours was a circle with Peggy that didn't have a name. And there were seven of us that were consistent for all of those years. And so I decided I would um, start this circle, this little writing circle and create assemblies in the schools and create this program. And in that first year, I had a really amazing group in Northern California. And then towards the end of that first year, Tupac joined the group. And although he was younger, he grew up with an expectation that, that he would serve and that he would be active and that, that he would make a difference. And I was always fascinated and interested in politics and the role of politics and what governing means and and the role of morality and right and wrong, because I had a father who was a lawyer and eventually became a judge. So there's always the conversation of what's moral, what's right, what's ethical, and how do we live ethically? And what is the role of politics in that? Education and religion. And so in this group, with all these brilliant minds, Ray Love, Jacinta, Tupac, Kenyatta, um, we would tackle these issues. And he's 17 at this point. So he's, a he's young, 17. A um, thinker. So many connection points with you as you explain congruence between activism and, and music and poetry and thinking and reading. And the other part of that is also that it's a privilege to ponder social change. Mm -hmm. It is a privilege that I could actually sit around thinking about what would make the world better. And so many people who grow up in struggle can't think clearly about how to get out and change things unless you grow up like Tupac and in your struggle, that's all you do is think about and fight to shift things. Let me just back up to, cause you were talking about Tupac because he had just been in Baltimore where he had a fantastic experience at the performing school of arts school of there. Performing arts. Yeah. School of performing arts. And, and you see in the doc, then why did they move to Northern California? I can't really answer that. I understand from his mom and from him that things got very difficult. They had a lot of challenges. So I can't tell you that there was one reason. I think that there were many reasons and the primary reason was that Afeni wanted somewhere for her kids to be healthy and safe and to change their lives. Her number one priority was her children. And then next to her children um, was her activism. And it's painful to be a fighter, a freedom fighter, a fighter for struggle. And, and it gets exhausting. I. I'm exhausted, you know, I give up all the time, but I can't, it's in my DNA. So um, I think that the move was a move to, to make changes in their lives. And then um, that's how we connected. He came and 
I was always looking for artists who wanted to be part of this group that had the fundamental, fundamental understanding and commitment that their voice has power. Our voices have power. And in order to tap into that power and do more than just entertain people, we have to do the work on ourselves and educate ourselves. And for some of us, that's lifelong. It, it's a process. We think we have it together and then we have to go back again and again and again. And, you know, I'll be 62 in a few months and I'm still learning. You're still there. <laughs> well, he says that he's trusted you so much in showing you his first poetry. Describe the poetry that you read there the, when he was just a teenager. Um, I mean, he wrote a lot of it with us. Him and Ray Love wrote so much together. I will say that the interesting thing is that people don't know how much Ray's writing and Ray, um, as a young artist, influenced Tupac. Ray came from a musical family. He's Cab Calloway's grandson. He grew up in oh, the business. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I imagine that Ray would have been the one in the front, except that his father, who knew what a horrible business this was, who told me that I better not help his son, and that his son was not going to be in this horrible business. And I wish, you know, I wasn't such a know-it-all in my <laughs> early 20s, and I would have sat with Ray Tyson, his father, a little bit more and and understood that I would come to to agree with everything his father said to me. Oh, really? You feel and, in hindsight? Oh, yeah, yeah, so much. I mean, this is a horrible business. It's so toxic because it's so powerful, because of what art's potential is, because there's so much money in this. Um, so, yeah, his dad came over one day and really let me know you might think you get it you're such a little know-it-all and no matter what you still walk in privilege and at the end of the day your kids and your mother don't share the privilege but you can walk into any room and so you don't understand the casualties that will lie in your wake and I was afraid of his dad and I think that I knew he probably um, knew more than me and knew what he was talking about, but I was so stubborn because I felt like we could do so much. And, you know, I was young and thought we were going to change the world. I believe that, um, that we were a collective of artists with an intention and I didn't want to stop. And then Pop came and he didn't have the restrictions. He had more, um, drive than any of us maybe all of us put together and he had a desperation that actually superseded what I thought I was doing and he always felt his time was limited you know 17 to feel your time is limited you have to ask yourself why did he feel his time was limited well he felt um young black males were endangered and that if he made it to 25, it would be a blessing. And so I, I also think there's such a lesson in how we see ourselves and how we're programmed and what society says. 
But because of that, Tupac really took the lead in our group. And, you know, we always talk about the first song he ever released is Trapped. And Ray wrote that. And that's the only song that he ever recorded that was someone else's idea and that someone else wrote. But he felt that they were so close and so connected that he said the words came through Ray, but they were his. Mm. And so it's just a, a funny thing when I think back about it and beautiful because Ray gave him the song and he honored Ray by doing it. And I do believe that he got a lot from Ray and that Ray is not credited or acknowledged necessarily and how much he had an impact on everything from Tupac's style, his delivery, his writing, his sparring. And another person who, of course, had an incredible Faini. I mean, he was, you mentioned she's a Black Panther. She, you know, was pregnant with him in, in jail. But she was an incredible orator. She defended herself in court, but also struggled with addiction. Um, but what was, in your point of view, her biggest impact on Tupac? I mean, her love. Her love was the driving force of everything. Her her love for her son, her love for the people, her love for change. She um, had an impact on all of us. Afeni was very intimidating. She was an incredibly powerful woman. And I realize all these years later that I think I always wanted her approval. I, um, I wanted a level of acceptance because the work and the foundation that was laid mattered. And so my entry was at the most challenging point in her life. And so I'm a horrible reminder of a small moment in time, but that those couple of years don't define who Afeni was and her gift. They just define how brutal these times are and what was done to Afeni. And I think that Alan's documentary is so important because he really gave us that window. Um, he, He really was able to define the time period of the Panthers, what their intention was, what Afeni had to go through by herself, how she was let down. And none of us would want to trade places if we think about it. And we look at Tupac and Afeni's lives. Who would trade places and have to go through what they went through as individuals, as family, and as activists? And without the support system, that anyone would need for any one of those things. They dealt with so much and the majority of people around were always around for the handout, for how they could benefit, for what this relationship could do for them. And when it was time to protect them, both of them, that wasn't there. And that's the heartbreak is that they really did give their lives for people who didn't necessarily appreciate that. I mean, even looking and analyzing and dissecting Pac's very short life, you might see him smiling and smoking a little here and there, 
Tupac was never happy. He was always burdened. I think the happiest times for all of us were when we were um, fighting to get in the door and be heard. And it was right before. And once the door opened and celebrity began, there was very little joy and happiness. There was always the stress, the pressure, the industry, the handouts, and the lack of understanding. And, and it's sad, you know, it was really hard for me to watch the documentary. I need to oh, I call Alan. I wanted to, um, at first I wasn't gonna do it. And then I sat with Alan and he, um, he really, in our talking, it was so cathartic. And his approach really showed me the possibility of healing. And so I felt that, um, that it was really important that he actually was the one. Yeah, and were you surprised? I mean, his history with him basically... It's why I didn't want to do it. I mean... The listeners don't know that um, he Tupac was very upset that he didn't cast him in Menace to Society. So he had actually had him jumped and, and really beaten. Put and him in the hospital. Put him in a yeah. hospital. And now he made this documentary. Were you surprised? I When he first reached out, actually, um, he didn't reach out. Other people kept hitting me up. And I said, have Alan call me. <laughs> And then I sat with Alan and then Alan and Atrin, and I really saw his heart. And then I had to think back. He was 19 years old, how dumb we all were. I started all this, you know, in my teens and early twenties, I had this huge vision and I have to think, who did I think I was? And he was a kid now. I sided with Tupac at the time because Tupac being attached to the project is why Alan got a budget. And so I looked at it. We're talking about Menace to Society. Menace to Society. So I I looked at um, what I understood about that film. And Alan was a director and he had his own vision. I never considered his vision. And I never considered that, you know, Tupac did act first and think later. And he was very passionate and very, um, he was loud and emotional. And part of my work really, although it started with all of us, it also is um, a response to that I grew up around a lot of people that, including my family, that were not emotionally literate, that you know, respond and then think about it. And so when I sat with Alan, I was like, oh my gosh, as I went back and relived it and really put myself in his shoes and had the empathy that I require of everyone around me to have and I didn't have, I was like, man, it's actually really important. You love Tupac and you were really hurt and you didn't have resolve. I want to participate and I want to help this process. And I always say, Anybody that does anything, Tupac requires therapy after, before, during, <laughs> because it's so much. So I would make jokes throughout the whole four-year process. Hey, you seen a therapist yet? Um, <laughs> because I knew he would uncover things and it mm-hmm. would be emotional. And 
I also know there's so much turmoil in um, that as we deal with the turmoil of Tupac, we need to also learn what it is to step outside of our own experience. And so I ended up participating with Alan. I, um, they got footage and photos from me from early on. And then I did the interview, but I didn't really want to see it. You know, they would invite me to, to look at the footage and Alan was just so generous and awesome, but it's weird to watch something you had to live. And then you do watch it and you see so much that you forgot or didn't know because we don't even know our own children. We don't know our own parents. So you don't know the people you grew up in a house with. How are you gonna know anybody that grew up different from you? Even if you're with them every day, we don't know someone else's thoughts. And so um, when it came time to actually watch it, I went and saw the screening and it was so weird to sit in a room with all these people I haven't seen in years. And it was really emotional. And I kept looking at my kids for their approval because I've embarrassed my family so many times <laughs> through the years. So I wanted to feel like they could be proud of their mother or feel okay about you know this chapter. My son was born after Pac passed away. And so he's an incredible artist. Naiku is a beautiful young man, but he wasn't around for that chapter in my life. So it was very, like, after we left, he said that one of the things he got out of it was he knew his mom differently. He got to know a side of his mom that he Amazing. never knew. So it was really, that was special. And then I watched the, the whole series. And I feel like Alan did an amazing job, especially because he didn't have a lot of cooperation, especially because at the same time as you're untangling a story, you're dealing with the business of mm -hmm. somebody's life and death and all of the residual pain and hurt. Can you imagine how much his sister suffers every day? His sister had to live through all this loss. She never had any interest in this industry. And there is no privacy for anyone in Tupac's family. So I can say, yeah, that was a chapter in my life, but I've gone on and done all these other things. They never, it's the same thing with, you know, I was talking recently, my last name defines me. If you know my last name is Steinberg, then you know Steinberg is a Jewish last name. So I can get rid of my last name and no one quite knows what I am. They're like, are you Middle Eastern? Are you Hispanic? Well, like, what are you? Um, Tupac could not ever change his skin. He always had to walk as a black male with all of the judgments and issues and challenges the world throws at you especially in this country, but it's a global issue. Race is a global issue. And so um, it's the same thing for anyone that carries the name Shakur, anyone that's in Tupac's family, still have an identity that's connected to a history and the whole world is watching. And, and that's a lot to carry. And seeing the film reminded me of that and reminded me of 
the intentional movement that Afeni started, um, and then the collapse and what happens and COINTELPRO and all of the dynamics that, um, that came from the outside to destroy the work of a woman and a family and a movement. Um, we'll get into that a little bit, but I just have to back up to mention that you became his manager during some very imperative years. This was when he was in the Oakland-based group Digital Underground, and we can see in the document, I, I was struck by, you can see in his face from those years, 17, 18 year old, he's so happy and beautiful and this big smile in several of his interviews. And then I feel that you can see a change in his eyes as it progresses. Um, what were you watching from afar that was happening to him? Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. The interesting thing is it wasn't from afar. I was always connected to the community that he worked in, even when he went to death row. Um, if it was from afar, it would have been easier. It's very hard to have a front row seat and have no impact, to be a non-factor. I was a factor early on. Again, my last name helped me get indoors. My privilege, my access, my whiteness, those are really, um, those are real factors and why I ended up in the business because I'm not naturally a good business person. I, there's nothing about doing business that I enjoyed. I'm an artist and an educator who fell into business strictly because of race, because my husband couldn't rent a venue because he would walk in as a black male and they would say the venue was booked. Two days later, I walk into the same venue. Hi, my name is Layla Steinberg. I want to rent the venue and I would get it. So I began to have evidence that I would collect just for my family and my children to understand how real these issues are, how difficult it is to go get an apartment if you were my husband and how easy it was for me. And so I began a process of documenting all of the times just being my female, pale Steinberg self could go get anything and people I loved couldn't. And so that was kind of the beginning. And then I was in this band. I was in a Nigerian band. And I began to do some of the business for the band. I would talk to the promoters. I would deal with the money. I would deal with the hotels on the road. So I didn't know I was learning road management, tour management, um, band management skills. I was just being white and making it um, easier on those that actually were so much more talented than I was. And 
so the, that was the beginning of my learning about the business of this industry. And then when we had our writing group and we were doing all these shows and people thought I was a really big promoter because I was always getting all the credit. So on top of the access, I would get credit for things that weren't really mine. I would help people put on shows that were not necessarily my idea in the beginning. I would book a venue. And then I'd have my name on there because they needed my name on there. And then suddenly, oh, Layla's promoting all these events. Oh, she's a promoter now. Oh, she produced this event. And so that also became very difficult because some of that stuff was my husband's and they were acknowledging and giving me credit for things he should have been acknowledged and got credit for. And it didn't matter how much I screamed, it was his or he did it that society. And so it became really stressful on my relationship because he wasn't acknowledged and I was. And then Ray, all Ray's idea wasn't even Tupac. Ray was like, Layla can be our manager. She can talk to these labels because she gets to any artist that we need. She can do it. And I was like, there is no way I am not going to be anybody's manager. And they didn't pay attention to me. They got business cards with my name and number on it. Ray and Tupac would pass this card out. And it just was like contagious. People started calling me all the time. They wanted them to do the heist. I really was appointed and I just wanted out from day one. I kept saying, I'll do this until, I'll do it until. <laughs> I reached out to Atrium, but Atrium lived in LA. So I had to stay active because he was in LA dealing with digital, dealing with helping me with Tupac. So I did a lot of work on the ground. I would go to the sessions with digital. I, I mean, whatever I could do. And I was learning the business without understanding what Atron was teaching me, what these kids were teaching me. And so anyway, I ended up with a whole career in a business that I didn't even want to be in. And I'm still here. <laughs> yes, you certainly are. And still managing. We'll get to that too. But but um, you did see the other side of it. You have said that the record executives profited off violence. And, and, and oh, tremendously. We're watching. What was happening with Puck in the later years he passed away? I mean, conflict is also... Um, something we feed into, otherwise the news would tell us all the beautiful things that happen in life every day. But people watch the news for tragedy. And I don't know what's in our DNA as people. I don't know what it is that makes us run to a fight, run to an accident. And I'm not exempt, I've done the same thing. But, um, in a business, whether we're talking film, television, music, whatever it is, the um, core of story, you know, when we think of storytelling, what is the lesson? What is the core? And so anytime there is a conflict, we feed into it and then we get the outcome. So Tupac's entire story was a story of conflict, of pain, of, of overcoming tragedy. And so um, each time there was an incident, sales erupted. And so instead of those that were in a position to help navigate away, 
they fed it to the press. They perpetuated it. And, and a lot of money was made off the conflict at the expense of the kids that were in the conflict. And at times there wasn't even a real conflict until the press got a hold of it and turned it into something. And by, you know, 93, I was not very active anymore in, in the specific business of Tupac, but I was active in the activism of Tupac. And eventually I was supposed to head the educational division that <clears throat> we always planned for. Then he became a liability. So it didn't help me once he was famous. There was, because there was so much turmoil and it wasn't easy for me. I was criticized all the time for my affiliations with many artists that I was affiliated with. And I excused a lot of things that now I wouldn't excuse because I always looked at the long term. What and do you I mean? Which with, were the things you excused? I mean, a, a clear example would be Mac Mall. Mac Mall was a 15 year old kid that I also managed. Um, I would say Tupac had a lot to do with why I ended up working with Mac Mall and Young Lay and all these Bay Area artists. And he eventually was going to do a group. He wanted to have Ray, Mac Mall, and Young Lay as a group out of the 707. Tupac wanted to have groups in all these different areas that would be part of this initiative that he was planning. And so early on, Mall's first record, just the cover alone, I should have said I can't have my name on on a record where the cover is bright red with guns on the cover. It was a very violent cover. The intention and the dialogue around it was important, but it didn't serve the intention. It was a commentary on, on the violence that young black men had to deal with. It was a commentary on gangs and it was a commentary on who's really doing illegal business. Is it white corporations or is it these kids in the streets and who's handing these kids guns? But people didn't have the dialogue that would help understand this cover. They fed into the violence that the visual provided. And so when I say I condone things that now I wouldn't, I couldn't have my name on a cover like that now. I don't think that um, that it's healthy. I think that violence begets violence. And I think that we escalated violence in a lot of the art that was really expressing the violence. It traveled. And so when I say that, what I'm saying is that I'm from LA. I, you know, have parents that grew up in South Central. My parents went to LA and Dorsey High. Although my mom came from Mexico at nine, she did grow up in the heart of South Central. And so I grew up in the territory that was the inception of gangs. Before Bloods and Crips were the Slossons and the Gladiators. My dad was one of the only white kids that hung with the Slossons. So early on, I had an understanding of gangs and the role of gangs. What happened with hip hop and with music in my generation is we became the soundtrack of 
what was happening in, in Los Angeles and the gangs in LA. I knew Easy, I knew all those guys. And their commentary was not to spread the culture of violence or gangs, but all of a sudden, the travel of these gangs and, and the business of gangs was suddenly popping up in this state and that state, and then it spread overseas. And so this little birth of um, what was happening in South Central traveled all over the world and music helped that happen. And music glorified and made some of what was going on sexy and you wanted to be part of it. And there were, had there been more dialogue around it, then our approach could have been different. Then we could have dissected and analyzed and not reproduced in, in an unhealthy way. And so I, I feel responsibility there because I became an executive that helped the spread of this and you know everyone that was there knows I was fighting about and that's just one example but I fought about that cover I didn't want that cover but I gave in because I listened to the circle I was in and I listened to but this is for this and this is the long-term plan but it doesn't always work that way we become what we want to say we we become what we surround ourselves with so you're in the streets you're like that's one thing I, I definitely feel I share with Pac. We both wanted to change a culture of violence. We both wanted to address race and justice. And, you know, where does light shine in the darkest places and the most painful places? You can't do the work if you're not in the work. And then you bring the work home with you. You bring the violence home with you. You bring the pain home with you. Um, and so then you have your own pain and the pain that drives you to want to change things, but then you bring everybody else home, literally, figuratively, and it seeps into you. So when you see Tupac shift, you see this bright-eyed, beautiful kid who has suffered so much and that suffering drives him to want to make a difference. And then you see him go straight to the streets where he wants to make a difference and you see the metamorphosis and he begins to look like who he's serving. Um, because when Pop first joined our group, he was extremely feminine. And I say that they're not with any judgment or um, label, but we're all masculine and feminine. We encourage and show different parts of us. But Tupac, you know, at 17, wore nail polish sometimes and was so just gentle in his mannerisms and he loved ballet. He would prance around the living room, you know, doing ballet moves he learned from School of Performing Arts. He loved Don McLean's Vincent. Thank you. And one of his favorites. But I don't think he could have hung out with Dre and those guys doing ballet moves in the living room. But do you feel and he got disillusioned to sort of whole industry as you were saying that they profited off violence because it feels like violence was around him as well that that you know, it was some... around all of us it, it it was an eruption it was a volcano that exploded and none of us could understand how the lava would travel and what would happen and it's not so much 
I, I don't think he ever let go of the hope and prayer for change, but I do believe he felt he couldn't be here for it. And that is his work ethic. I do believe he felt he had so much to offer that he worked like a maniac, never slept. And sleep is really essential. When you're not resting, you start to go crazy. Your mind mm -hmm. plays tricks on you. That's why sleep is mandatory. None of us slept very much back then. But, you know, we weren't all hanging out and kicking it. We were working. He worked day and night. That's why I said he wasn't happy. Um, I think after... After Interscope, when he went to death row, it was crucial. That was it. I mean, that was like, there are certain lines you cross in life with people, with choices, and there's no coming back from that. And I think his entry into death row, there was no coming back. That's why he's not here now. If there was a coming back, there would still be um, us getting to see who Tupac would have been as a 50-year-old. And that's part of the heartbreak. But I, I just, in all that he went through and everything that happened, he still had this tremendous belief in the possibility of change. And he was willing to give his life for it. And, and he knew this. I mean, my work will happen when I'm not here anymore. He's and he clear. said it all yeah. the time. Where were you when, when you heard of his death? In Oakland, mm -hmm. in denial. I, um, it was the seventh, that was the day he got shot. That was Tracy Robinson's birthday. My dear friend, Tracy Robinson, who is actually battling cancer now. And her, on sorry. my Instagram, if anyone could go to my Instagram and go to her page and support her, I have a post she's, really fighting for her life right now. And Tupac would want all of us to help her and support her. She wasn't in the film, but she was his only business partner in his production company. Um, in terms of all those years, Tupac was signed to people, he worked with people, but he sought out Tracy and thought that she was gonna be there for the films he was writing and all the stuff they planned to do. And so I, I would love to see people go and, and support Tracy. And I totally lost my train of thought of why I went there. You were with Tracy when you heard. Oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. News. So Tracy, they all went on the 7th. Part of the reason they all went to Vegas, it was the fight and it was Tracy's birthday. And Tupac is the reason and Tyson. Tracy and everyone went out. And so he got shot on her birthday, which is just heartbreaking. And they called me, but I believed he was going to get better because the last time he got better, I couldn't wrap my mind around that he wouldn't be okay. And so all week I kept thinking, I'm going to get out there, but I knew he was going to be okay. So when he didn't make it and he died on the 13th, I was in Oakland taking my kids somewhere and I got the call before it went public. And I just, I couldn't believe it. And then I called Shock and Ray and everyone, and we all met on KMEL on Sway's show. We all just spent the whole night crying together on the air and really mourning with an entire city, the entire Bay Area. Um, love Puck. It was really, that was a, a really hard time in my life. I, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's just so long ago, it's so crazy to me. If you were to sum up his lyrics, his music, what is it that appeals to every community? What is it he said that makes his it heart? Fun? His heart. And you cannot read a poem or listen to a song and not know that this young man had one of the biggest hearts and his pain was accessible. He was willing to be completely vulnerable and access to that does something to other people. It, um, the heart touches the heart and he had an undeniable heart or there wouldn't be millions of people that mourned him and still listen to him today. And we have access, his story will live on and we will learn the lessons and they're not all positive. We, we have to analyze his choices and his mistakes so that we don't repeat them. And he gave us a wealth to do that with. And, you know, that's why I, my life is really different now. I'm definitely more conservative than I was when I was younger. I definitely think there are things that were not healthy in the way all of us lived. I, I don't think teenagers need to be smoking weed. I think that the legalization of weed makes it, um, it popularizes the use of substance. And I think that we have to prioritize our health differently. I think we should have 14 year olds looking at meditation and let them know you can get just as high, maybe higher if you can access parts of your brain differently. And so there are things in the messaging that I would like to see different um, now that I've been able, thankful um, that I'm still here to share and pass on all the things I've learned. And, you know, I've also seen change and results. So it keeps my faith in humanity. I believe in people and does love Tupac, loves the heart of Tupac. They know he cared. You have worked for decades with prisoners. San Quentin, for example, you started Aim for the Heart. Um, tell me about Aim for the Heart. So I have worked with incarcerated people now for a good 33 years at least. I actually... I started the work in the 80s, and then in the 90s, my brother said, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have a nonprofit? And I said, I don't want a nonprofit. I don't even want to have a business. I just want to do the work. He said, well, you're never really going to do the work the way you want to if you don't formalize it. So my brother actually formalized the organization for me in the 90s, and so I am a 501c3. I work in the music business to afford to do this other work. I've never been funded. It's crazy. Thank God that his mom let me put the Tupac's poetry book out. That's helped fund a lot of the work. It's the one called The Rose That Grew From, the Concrete. Rose that grew from Concrete. It's the poetry that he wrote between 17 and 19 that with permission from his mom, you put out. And that money all went to Aim for the Heart. I oh my gosh. Thank Yeah. So and a lot more than that. But <laughs> But I've done, and Earl, I manage Earl with my daughter and some other artists, um, Fauna Hughes. There's a number of artists that have given back, and I'm so thankful. And then I've been um, doing work in the metaverse with Gala, and I've been able to generate some money doing advising for Web3 
and with gala and that's also been helpful i've been able to do a lot more programs because of that so i'm always when i look at doing business with an artist i look at what their commitment is to community and if they will give back because i ran the whole organization primarily with volunteers and artists who want my help. I have them doing the facilitating. But my goal this year is to, um, I have two amazing partners and I think it's representative of the work. I had been working on the curriculum and there's a woman named Mona, um, my beautiful Muslim sister and Marisol, she's Cuban. And I just think we're this funny little triangle of women and they helped me, they're both incredible educators. Marisol has her master's and Mona has her PhD. And they helped me rewrite the whole curriculum to make it accessible and adaptable. And so my goal is to, in the next few years, train educators and anyone that's interested that we can all change the hearts of the world if we have emotional literacy as a priority and that we realize that every teacher holds a room full of lives in the palm of their hands. And a teacher can change the entire trajectory of a child's life in a day. It's that possible. But compared to the kids in the 90s, kids now, 2023, um, what are the obstacles, the things that they're going through today? Media. You can see. <laughs> yeah, really? Technology. We're very, very challenged between social media and COVID. We have, I keep hearing that we have an epidemic of loneliness, um, but the epidemic is really the inability to communicate because media has taken everyone and their, their whole life exists on a cell phone. We stopped having meals and communicating. I, any restaurant you walk into, everyone is on their phone now and it's a global phenomenon. And so this work is actually even more important now because we are combating that. And I hate when people say lockdown, no one was on lockdown just because of COVID. You just had to stay in the house. I deal with people who are incarcerated, who know what it's like to sit 23 hours a day in a box for years. That's lockdown. We didn't experience a lockdown. We experienced an isolation and there is a big difference but people still had the world on their phones and they could still communicate and get out and breathe fresh air. The impact of COVID and the impact of social media has this generation more emotionally disconnected than any generation prior. And we have not done anything to learn the tools that it takes to build across our borders and our barriers. And so my primary commitment, and I think the work I have in this life is to help people become emotionally literate, which does not mean that you just know how to identify your own feelings and manage your own feelings and behavior. It's that you know how to read all the people around you. It's that you walk in a room and know if someone's not okay, that you can isolate and identify someone who has the potential to act out violently. And so my work, and now it's not just in institutions and classrooms and facilities. Now I'm going into corporate spaces because in corporate spaces, there's also a huge lack of understanding, empathy, and communication. 
but corporations drive culture and we have to be accountable. And so one of my students actually, Stu um, Summersville, who graduated young black, graduated USC law at 21. He's an anomaly, yeah. but he's the one that said, Layla, can you come do a workshop at William Morris? He was at William Morris at the time. And I was like, huh, that's a good idea. And we went from there. And, and so now they're helping me redefine all the different areas of service. And once I do a training, people don't need me. You can apply these tools every day and find your own way to continue the work because we all need it all the time, every day. Have you seen all the work you did for community, between communities, racism between the 90s and now? Do you think positively of all this you did, Afeni, yourself, Tupac, everyone? I see incredible changes. I've seen profound healing happen. I've seen the work um, and incredible results, but I've also seen, you know, the most polarizing time in my life um, during Trump's presidency. And I say that without taking a position politically, I'm talking about the social emotional impact of divisive people in positions of power. And I think that that's the next stage of the work is um, I, I'm really interested in jury duty and, and being in those spaces because the courtroom are emotional people making decisions. But I see politicians, it should be required learning that anybody that holds political office is trained in emotional literacy. I do not believe that you should be allowed to be in a position of power and run a country and be emotionally illiterate, socially illiterate, culturally illiterate, and racially illiterate. It doesn't work, and it's unhealthy, and that's why what happened happened um, in D.C. There are some mandatory things that should be across all religious, political spaces that it doesn't matter which side of whatever you're on, this is required learning, and so I hope in this lifetime that that's my offering and that I can help make a drastic change. And what about in hip hop and rap? Have you seen changes since when you guys were? Yeah, so much. I mean, you know, from Tupac to Earl is quite a journey. I don't see the same issues with artists I'm working with now. I think that kids are coming in more evolved they're smarter than our leaders. They laugh at how ignorant we are. And, um, you know, I'm excited about the music that's coming. I, I hear people, oh, you know, the 90s or the this, and they try to put things in a capsule. And now we don't, there's no real whatever. I don't find any of that. Art evolves, we all grow and we learn. And, the time identifiers should just be our learning points. Tupac is going to be crucial in 300 years from now. As we study this time period, we will study him to understand social conditions, race in this time period, what happened. Um, and then, you know, in 20 years from now, our artists are our, our artists that become the standouts will be who we study for the changes that happened in AI and Mm -hmm. um, 
all these different spaces and technology, like who are our leaders in defining what technology's pros and cons are and how will we adapt in these spaces so that we can understand the incredible benefits we have with technology and how technology and Web3 remove borders and, and help us to have access to an entire world and that you don't have to walk a mile to a library, you have the whole world at your fingertips. So if yeah, we that's the can, good part of media. <laughs> right, so if we can fixate on the positives and challenge ourselves to shift the negatives, we will be in such a different place. So I'm here for that. And finally, what do you hope, like, especially for for younger viewers, that Alan's documentary and Tupac and Afeni's story and the story of all of you in this show, what will it bring to them? My hope is that we all understand that we are either part of the solution or we are the problem. My hope is that people are inspired to get active, that everyone has their choice of where their activism is, but that we um, stop being complacent and that we know our voice matters and that everybody that watches makes a commitment to go home and put energy into what their activism is, that, um, that we realize sometimes it takes a lot of loss for change, but change is possible. And that, that we are motivated and inspired by this story to do something about our challenges. I, I was very touched by your, you were talking about how your mentors put books in your hands and how Afeni put books in Tupac's hands and just, you know, one hopes that that just educating yourself and reading and learning is, is something that- I, I really, that's another thing. He was an avid reader. I would hope that people um, are inspired to pick up books and start reading. We've got to get educated and it doesn't come from watching a YouTube video. We really got to do the work. It takes rigor, it takes application. You don't have to have a degree. You don't even have to do it through a campus, but we are required to do the work. We have to educate ourselves that healing, like there are no saviors. That would be the other thing that I would want people to take away is that there's nobody coming to save you that your healing is in your hands, that we take control of our healing and we take control of our lives and we take control of our education and that we holistically work on ourselves without thinking it's coming from external forces or that someone outside is gonna come and um, pull us up. We have to show up and pull ourselves up still we're very grateful for people like you who do show up <laughs> and with this type of message so so thank you so much Leila, for your time thank you so much for even having me or thinking i have something worthwhile to share and aim for the heart.org or people i respond to my instagram Graham, what is the address it's Layla underscore steinberg aim for the heart.org Thank you so much. I hope people will go and check that out and then contact you with things. And, and thank you again. This was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture 
Com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. 